The following presentation on Enlightenment and Revolution is brought to you by the Institute of Catholic Culture. This and other audio and video files are available at instituteofcatholicculture.org. After a welcome by Michael Sorotniak, Director of Catechesis and Evangelization at St. Veronica Catholic Church in Chantilly, Virginia, is an introduction by Sabatino Carnazzo, Executive Director of the Institute. And now, part one of Enlightenment and Revolution with Professor Mark Wunsch, St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to St. Veronica's Catholic Church. My name is Michael Sorotniak. I work here in the Office of Catechesis and Evangelization, and I'm happy to welcome you here. Uh, I just want to do one plug before we start, and it's for our Lord Jesus Christ, so it's a good plug. Uh, we do have an adoration chapel here uh, down the hall and to the left. We have adoration here 24 hours from Monday to Saturday morning, so please feel free to make a visit while you're here before you uh, listen to the talk or after you listen to the talk. Uh, feel free to spend as much time as you want adoring our Lord because he reigns here in the Eucharist, and that's the best thing about this parish. So I'm happy to welcome you here. And we're going to have uh, Reverend Father Charles Abolit lead us in our opening prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, dear, with confidence and without condemnation, to call upon you as our God and Father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Okay, welcome this evening. A few quick announcements. Um, uh, generally about the Institute of Catholic Culture. We'll have more to, uh, time to talk about this over the next couple of weeks, but um, we are an adult education program uh, that has been existing at St. John the Beloved in McLean, Virginia uh, for the last three years. This past July 1st, we uh, departed from, uh, from St. John's and founded the Institute as a privately funded nonprofit educational institute with the mission of going out to parishes like St. Veronica's and offering uh, educational programs in Catholic history, philosophy, theology, with an emphasis in sacred scripture at no charge to the faithful and at no charge to the parish we go to. Um, why are we doing this? Because we need to begin to equip adult Catholics to be, be able to give a reasoned answer for what they hold in their hearts. My wife opened the door today um, to some Jehovah's Witnesses. They came last week when my brother was there. And uh, <laughs> fortunately for them, my brother was in the middle of doing something he couldn't get away from, but he said, you've got to come back next week. And unfortunately, they showed up again when I wasn't there, so my wife scheduled them for this Saturday. Um, <laughs> I love speaking with Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, anyone who will uh, talk with me about the faith, and I encourage you to do the same. Uh, at the Institute of Catholic Culture, we hope to be able to give you the tools to be able to speak with our Protestant brethren, with Jehovah's Witnesses, with Mormons, with, uh, with Muslims, 
with fallen away Catholics, and we keep our doors open at no charge for those among us who are, we might say, on the edge of the body of Christ. Those who would not otherwise pay to come to a talk may come here and learn the truths of our faith. We welcome uh, not only Catholics, but uh, I can guarantee you there are a number of Protestant, Protestants among us today, and so you're welcome. Here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, you will hear the Catholic faith taught unaltered. Okay, we have a number of our Protestant brethren that are uh, donors to the Institute of Catholic Culture because they know that when they hear the Catholic faith taught here, it is taught without alteration. And so I want to say thank you to our donors who make it possible for us to be able to go out to parishes like this, to be able to offer these programs. We have a whole lineup coming up. First of all, we're going to be here for four weeks. Uh, The first two weeks, we're going to be dealing with the ideas that are behind the revolutions which took place across the world. Professor Mark Wunsch is going to be leading us in these talks over the next two weeks. And then Professor Brendan McGuire is going to be talking about the historical things which took place. When things take place in the world, there's reasons behind those events taking place. People act based upon what they know, even if it's bad reasoning. And so there was bad reasoning which led to the Enlightenment, bad reasoning which led to the revolutions which spread across the world, and we'll be dealing with those in this series. So take this home, put it on your, uh, on your, uh, what, your refrigerator, give it to your friends, take it to work, and let's double our numbers next week. It looks like we have about 200 here today, so that's good news. And we have more coming as we speak. Um, if, if you are a, uh, a uh, tither, um, if you donate money to charitable organizations, we ask you to join our cause. There is a donation brochure there that you can fill out. Uh, I don't pass around hats or baskets and beg for a dollar or two dollars. What I do ask is for a commitment to become a pledged donor to the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Not so that you can pay to come in and hear a talk, but that you can help us keep our doors open so we can welcome those who need to hear the faith. So that brochure is there. Please feel free to take one of those home and prayerfully consider your support. Uh, We also are now on YouTube, and you're more than welcome to get on there and take this little thing. Uh, Father Scalia's talk is not on there, but we do have audio files on our website. Okay, And our website's listed on all our brochures. And so you can get on there and click on audio files and listen to, to our past talks. Th- a three-year library we have on there. Okay. Um, also, Father Scalia's talk will be posted on there, but it, will, it might be a couple of weeks. We're doing a little changeover with the website, so give us a little bit on that. Um, you also have your calendar for events coming up, and I want to point out to you that our next program... Um, Shadows of the Rosary, I will be leading a Bible study pilgrimage to the National Shrine. We'll meet there at the National Shrine. They have morning mass. And afterwards, in the apse of the church, uh, in Mosaic, are the 15 mysteries of the Rosary and their Old Testament shadows. And so we'll be going there with Bibles in hand, looking through the Old Testament, seeing how God prepared His people for the coming of Christ. So you don't want to miss that. Take that flyer and bring a friend with you. It's in the D.C., so, you know, get a couple friends, fill your car up, and uh, come down there together. Um, And finally, Labor Day weekend. Anybody going out of town for Labor Day weekend? Anybody going out of town? Change your plans. (laughs) 
you'll miss the best event in Washington, D.C. metro area all year long. It is the best program that we can offer. And the reason I say that is because it is truly a cultural event. The Middle Eastern Food Festival at Holy Trans Transfiguration Melkite Greek Catholic Church. First of all, the food is to die for. Okay? Um, and uh, the sweets that are there, oh, you wouldn't believe. The ladies uh, bake these by hand. The men are outside grilling all the food. You don't want to miss it. And there's authentic Christian Arabic dancing during the day with live music. And if that wasn't enough, we will have Vespers on Saturday evening, and I will be giving uh, church tours every hour on the hour throughout the two days of the, of the festival. So if you get there, my, my uh, voice is hoarse. You'll know why. So with that said, I want to ask you to um, do as we commonly do at the Institute, and that is there are many new faces here. So please stand up, turn to somebody that you don't know, and tell them where you're from and why you're here. Go ahead, stand up. <laughs> Professor Mark Wunsch received his licentiate in philosophy from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, otherwise known as the Angelicum, in Rome, where he is currently completing his doctoral studies in philosophy. Currently an assistant professor of philosophy at Christendom College, Mark specializes in metaphysics, history of philosophy, St. Thomas Aquinas, philosophical anthropology, and ethics. Please welcome Professor Mark Wunsch. All right, drop that in your pocket. Hello, everybody. Yeah, it's good to see you. If I haven't met you yet, it's a pleasure, a pleasure uh, to be introduced to you. Uh, as he mentioned, I'm Mark Wunsch, but more about me later. It's a topic I'm very interested in, always happy to talk about. So we'll get to that in a moment. But first, yeah, first things first. So we, we did prayer. Now let's, let's kind of uh, get to know each other a little bit by... Uh, I, I was recently actually a master of ceremonies at, at, a, at a, a lecture series, a conference. And, and I, for this, obviously, I had to tell some jokes. And so I thought, you know, maybe I will incorporate that uh, just to kind of, uh, kind of, you know, kind of get us familiar with each other before we dive in to the pool of, of that is philosophy, which is an enormous pool, and we're dealing with some very, uh, very deep concepts here. But, but so let's let's kind of enter by the streams and, and, and ways of familiarity by, by beginning with a joke. So uh, I'm going to start with a couple I found here. Uh, this this first one is entitled. A renowned philosopher and his driver. Okay, now uh, the, the, the kind of the, you don't, don't read me into this story. One, uh, not yet. You know, a renowned philosopher. Yeah, uh, and, and which isn't always a good thing. You know, there's a lot of renowned philosophers who are not good philosophers. Anyhow, a little distinction there. And I do not have a driver. Uh, and most most philosophers and most of my colleagues at Christendom College also do not have drivers, and, and uh, that's, uh, we'll just have to kind of uh, pretend, uh, this, uh, make up this, a lovely fantasy that I do, in fact, have a driver. So, so here it goes. A renowned philosopher was held in high regard by his driver, who listened in awe at every speech. I have actually imagined this multiple times. While his boss would easily answer questions about morality and ethics. Then one day, the driver approached the philosopher and asked if he was willing to switch roles for the evening's lecture. The philosopher agreed, and for a while, the driver handled himself remarkably well. When it came time for questions, however, from the guests, a woman stood up in the back and asked, Is the epistemological view of the universe 
still valid in an existential world. That is an extremely simple question, he responded. So simple, in fact, that even my driver could answer, which is exactly what he's going to do here. Yeah, and so, yeah. So, yeah, so, so hopefully my driver will sh you know, show up if I get stumped during the question and answer session. Yeah. And, and while, while we have time, let's, let's do another one. This is called a chair philosophy, okay? An eccentric philosophy professor, okay, we're getting closer here, gave a, a, a one-question final exam after a semester dealing with a broad array of topics. The class was already seated and ready to go uh, when the professor picked up his chair, plopped it on his desk, and wrote on the board, using everything we have learned this semester, prove that this chair does not exist. Fingers flew, erasers erased, notebooks were filled in furious fashion. Some students wrote over 30 pages in one hour, attempting to refute the existence of the chair. One member of the class, however, was up and finished in less than a minute. Weeks later, grades were posted, and the rest of the group wondered how this student could have gotten an A when he had barely written anything at all. His answer consisted, in fact, of just two words. What chair? I told you we'd move on to the higher subjects, the, my own autobiographical details. Uh, he, he covered most of them. I, just a few, other, a few things else. Yeah. So I am, uh, I, I'm, I'm relatively new to Christian College. I taught for Christian College's Rome program. As, as uh, Sabatino mentioned, I studied in Rome. I lived there with my wife for five years. My wife worked uh, uh, for the Vatican newspaper, and I, I studied. Uh, we had a daughter over, you know, over there. Uh, our eldest uh, now, Felicity, who's almost three now, uh, just turned three. And, and then uh, we have a little Sebastian at home. Uh, now we reside in Front Royal, and I came to uh, the Christian College, a very, very circuitous route, being from uh, the People's Republic of Boulder, actually. And uh, after I kind of hopped the wall in Colorado and, and made my way out over to Rome, and then finally back uh, in, in this very interesting way to Virginia. So I've been teaching at Christian College for two years, I'm very happy with it and enjoy it very much. So, so it's, that's where we're at now. And now that we know each other a little better, maybe you trust me a tiny bit, now we're going to start to do a little philosophy. Okay. So we'll begin uh, in, in by going over some basics. Now, I don't, I don't think this will be too trivial. I, I, in the lectures I gave with Professor McGuire, people had a hard time with the philosophy. They enjoyed it. But it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit tricky, you know. The history uh, is something that, that everyone can digest relatively easily. You know, names, dates, events, you've kind of all heard of these things. But philosophy is something a little more. And I find it uh, particularly interesting, and this is how my life carried on for some time, that a lot of adults who are, who are extremely intelligent, you know, with college degrees, go through their life with a, a smattering of history, certainly major events in world history, uh, history of war, history of culture, uh, famous musicians, etc. Everyone's familiar with these things to some extent. However, the history of ideas and the history of philosophy is something that not everyone is necessarily very accustomed to. 
Okay? So it takes some time to get used to this, but what I would like to do with the time I have, these first two lectures, is, as Sabatino mentioned, set the stage. Okay? Because there's something very interesting okay, about reality, is that sometimes the history of ideas anticipates or precedes human history or the history of events. Okay? And that is something I think that we have to come to grips with. Okay? And if we remember something that I remember actually from my days of living in Boulder, and that is this quote, that he who knows his own generation forever remains a child. Okay? Now, if we know our own generation, obviously we remain childish to some extent, and as we become familiar with historical events, we become less childish, we become more like adults. But, but we need some, to know something of the history of ideas to make sense of how history unfolds. Why did X event, the French Revolution, which, which my uh, colleague is going to talk about extensively, why did it arise when it did? Okay? Uh, why did some of these major events of, of, of the Enlightenment occur? Okay? You have to kind of look at the history of ideas in, under, in order to understand how history unfolds and to make sense of it. Uh, now, this has been proved time and time again throughout human history. I'm going to conclude next lecture by discussing a figure in the 19th century. You've probably heard of Nietzsche. And Nietzsche realized this in a, an astute way. And he said, okay, and I'm paraphrasing, that if people realize, if they had an inkling of the revolutionary notions that are dealt with in my works, they would cross themselves for right. Okay? And he said that the effect that my ideas will have on Europe will lead to death, fire, and destruction. Okay? Now this is the 19th century. And what do we have in Europe in the 20th century? A lot of fire, death, and destruction. Okay? So if you want to know why, why were people open to instructions to, uh, 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 to, to, to commit genocide? You know, what prepared the way? There has to be a reason. In order to make sense of this, we study something of the history of ideas. Okay? So that, that, that's just a little bit of an introduction. Now let's look at uh, the philosophy of the Enlightenment. Okay, now here, we're going to look at, and I'm going to move this. I have a lot to write on this, so, so hopefully uh, th that I think will be helpful to you. So do we have a little marker or something? Ah, uh, there we are. There we are. There you go. Okay. All right. Now, what characterizes, philosophically now, what, and I'm going to get into kind of what exactly is philosophy in a minute, uh, but let me just introduce things this way. What exactly characterizes the Enlightenment from a philosophical perspective? Okay. Now, I would say what characterizes the Enlightenment is twofold. Firstly, a radical understanding, or a radical optimism, I should say, in man's comp uh, capacity to comprehend his world by way of reason. Okay. There is a great optimism in reason's capacity to explain virtually everything, why things are the way they are, etc. Okay? 
Now, this is often and mostly divorced from any assistance from faith, but that reason alone can comprehend the universe and explain why it is the way it is, why man is the way he is, and even why historical events happen the way they do. Okay? Now, this is also, and I'm going to get into this in a minute, uh, uh, kind of followed by a, peculiar, a peculiarity. And paradoxically, while a great deal of, of the Enlightenment generation are moving forward with this great optimism, there is a parallel movement of enormous skepticism about man's possibilities to know anything. Okay? So that's what we have in the Enlightenment. We have an enormous optimism about man's possibilities to know and explain his world. Okay? And I, I kind of just made up this, this little diagram. Hopefully it'll help in a minute. And so there's a great optimism about reason's capacity to know and explain everything. And in fact, I doubt anyone's going to be able to read this. Okay? So what I will do is put a capital R in this box that represents this optimism of the capacities of reason. And I will put among these individuals a small f with a question mark that, that, that is meant to signify there is some doubt among these thinkers about whether faith can do anything uh, that reason cannot do. Okay? And, and some of these thinkers will actually deny faith altogether. So among them, what is, what is, what is, uh, what is a distinct mark is an unbridled confidence in reason's co uh, capacity to explain everything. Meanwhile, among uh, these other thinkers, I'll put a small r, there is uh, a movement of individuals who are not confident at all of man's ability to comprehend virtually anything that goes beyond empirical data. Okay? That is, that goes beyond what you can know through empirical uh, scientific examination. Okay? And that is a, another school of thought. The, uh, questions about the nature of man, questions about the purpose of man, about God, certainly reason cannot handle. All it is fit to tackle is questions about what can be empirically verified, okay? uh, the various data of experience, without trying to form any kind of universal generalizations about the way things are. Okay. So now, we're going to get into uh, what preceded this, okay, and, and ultimately what we believe in some sense as Catholics, and how it differs from these two notions. Okay? So let me take them in a general sense again. The first one is this unbridled optimism about the capacity of reason to explain everything. Okay? Now, now someone who would be kind of emblematic of, of that mentality would be someone like Hegel that I'll, I'll speak of uh, uh, next time. And I'll put their years of, of birth and death for a reference point. Okay? Hegel would be someone who would represent this. Okay, in fact, he felt that all of reality, even God himself, okay, was identical with human history. And in comprehending human history, we actually understand God as God has been unfolding 
through human history. Okay, now it sounds bizarre, and, but I'll have to kind of explain more of what he was thinking. Uh, but, but look at it from this perspective. He was a pantheist, and he thought that everything in some sense was God. Therefore, if you understand everything that has happened in history, you have comprehended fully God himself. Because God and nature are identified one with the other. Okay? So nature can unfold everything. This leaves what? Zero room for mystery. Zero room for anything that, that can't be rationalized. Okay? Now, as you might imagine, okay, and we'll get into this next time as well, this led to a, a, a revolution in reverse. Okay, so as we see the Enlightenment okay, begin to phase out, we see a rejection of reason entirely. We see a throwing out of the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. Because we have individuals like Nietzsche who says, come on, life is mysterious, love is mysterious, art is mysterious, and can't be perfectly rationalized. And to some extent, I think we would sympathize with that. Okay? And he says a phenomenal quote. He says, reason at any price is a destructive force that destroys life. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but if someone tries to rationalize everything, their life ends up collapsing. Okay? A famous story. I was listening to uh, public radio when I was a kid. And there's a story about a golfer. Okay? And this golfer tried to write a book on golf. And it was the end of his success as a golfer. Okay? He succeeded. He had won major tournaments. And then he tried to analyze his swing. He tried to break it up. He tried to dissect it. And in the process, he couldn't do it. And he couldn't function anymore. Okay? It's just some example of, of this phenomenon that I'm speaking about in very general terms. That reason at any, for, uh, any price is a destructive force that destroys life. And it, it doesn't leave any room for mystery. Any room for something beyond what man can comprehend. Which as Catholics obviously is, is a little bit abhorrent. Okay? Now what about the other side of the coin? Okay? Obviously individuals like Hume, okay, David Hume, uh, is someone kind of would be indicative of, of this, this other uh, school of thought. Uh, 1776, I think. <clears throat> Actually. Now, there's a problem here as well. Okay? If man cannot comprehend anything or very little about his world except empirical data, that also seems to be problematic. Okay? Just what I can sense. Uh, even science makes generalizations. And so if you hold that all you can know is empirical data, it seems like even science, which makes generalizations and laws that are meant to cover a whole variety of circumstances, would, 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 would be impossible. And any kind of general knowledge we have about man and how he should behave and how he should act is impossible. So clearly this also seems to be a vision of, of man that, that may be, or a vision of, of man's capacity to know that ought to be rejected. Okay? Now, these all run parallel to a third, I, I would say, group of thinkers that are kind of, uh, uh, kind of um, existing at this time of human history. 
And those are people we dealt with in the last series of lectures. Okay? We dealt with uh, uh, the, the Lutheranism and Calvinism. Okay? And so you, you, you might put up here, in addition to the, the people we have, we could put Martin Luther, who was alive from 1483 and died in 1546. Now, what is his uh, view about the relationship between faith and reason? Okay? Martin Luther, as you might remember from last time, is profoundly confident okay, in one thing, okay, and that is God and what he has revealed, obviously through the scriptures, okay, predominantly. Okay? And is, again, like these individuals, not confident about reason's capacity to explain reality. Okay? I'm going to get into this in a minute. So we look for another way to view the relationship between faith and reason. Okay? We have an overwhelming confidence in reason okay? and, and, and only a slight openness to faith. We have a, 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 a marginal uh, acknowledgement of the capacity of reason and, and an entire rejection of faith. And we have Martin Luther, who would hold that basically we can know by faith, faith alone, and that reason is primarily useless in coming to know uh, uh, anything really about ourselves, our world, or God. Okay? Now, is there an alternative way to view the relationships between faith and reason? Okay? I've tried to outline three kind of other possible solutions for the relationship between faith and reason, and, I, and I'm going to get to in a moment kind of the intellectual background of why they, some of these thinkers held these different positions. Well, now I'm going to explain what we believe kind of as Catholics, and also what was taught by St. Thomas Aquinas and the great medieval philosophers of the 13th century. So we have St. Thomas up here. And St. Thomas Aquinas was alive from 1225. Uh, until 1274. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, what is his vision of the relationship between faith and reason? Okay. Uh, uh, does anyone want to, to posit a solution? What does he say about the relationship between faith and reason? From what you've heard, maybe you've read the cyclical Fides Eratio, You've heard something about what the church says. What does he say about, about man's capacity to know? Would Aquinas be categorized as someone who was overcome or with, with a confidence in reason to comprehend absolutely everything? No. Okay. At the same time, was he confident in reason's capacity to know the world? Yes. So we're going to put just a, a nice R up here. Okay. Now, what about his assessment of faith? Is faith complementary to reason? Yes, it is. Faith might go beyond reason, but it's certainly comp uh, 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 compatible with it, though it supersedes it to some extent. Okay. So we have, with Aquinas... A confidence, in, a confidence in reason that nonetheless does not rise to the level of the Hegelians, okay, but supersedes what Luther and Hume have to say about man's capacity to know reality. 
But yet this reason is superseded and, 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 and is, is uh, by faith. Okay? So this gives us another, another outlook. Now how does he precisely understand then reason and faith? And now we're getting into some bedrock distinctions that will be helpful for the rest of our journey together. Okay? Because you need to kind of understand, first of all, what philosophy is before we can really deal with, with some meaty philosophy and how it's different and complementary with our faith. So what is philosophy? Okay. I, I love this lady. Yeah, she, so this is the answer that, that was given uh, the, the first time I lectured here. And it's a perfect answer. It's a perfect answer. Okay? Uh, now, now, for those of you who didn't hear it, uh, we, we might ask you to repeat it momentarily. Uh, but but what, so what, what, what can we say about philosophy? What, what else is, have you guys heard? What have you heard about philosophy? Study of knowledge? Okay, study of knowledge exclusively? A view on life, okay, I guess there's, the people have different philosophies. That's one way to speak about it, certainly. I don't, I don't think it might be the most precise way. What, what are some other understandings of philosophy? Study of ideas, absolutely. You kind of could study ideas themselves. Uh, okay, good. Love of wisdom. Thanks, thanks for that. That's another understanding of, of, of philosophy. That is the understanding, actually, of St. Augustine. Okay? It's, the, the, the very words mean love of wisdom, philosophy. And so love of wisdom could be love of anything that can be known. Okay? And, and here, though, you don't have a clear distinction between faith and reason, but you do have man seeking after knowledge uh, in various ways. And, and it's a helpful knowledge of philosophy. And I would say that's a definition of philosophy in the wide sense. In the wide sense, philosophy deals with knowledge that is attained by whatever means, okay? by revealed means, by, by looking out at the world, by looking at your desk, by looking at yourself in the mirror. That all has to do with philosophy. Okay? Uh, however, there's a more precise definition of philosophy that enters in and that was touched on by our friend here. And, and, and in order to, be, uh, to kind of uh, contrast it with theology, I'll reduce the, 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 the definition slightly and say philosophy is this. Philosophy is that which can be known through the natural light of human reason. Okay? Philosophy is that which can be known through the natural light of human reason. Now, what is peculiar about that definition? How would you define... Uh, Geology or zoology? Someone take a stab. I, I don't even know the answer. So, but, so, so you don't, you, there's no right or wrong answer as much. But how would you begin to define that? Study of what? Good. How is this definition different? The study of that which can be known through the natural light of human reason. That definition is not defined by the object of what is studied. Okay? It doesn't, we're not dealing with a study of this particular object, but it's a definition that talks about the way objects are comprehended. And so ultimate philosophy is not a reductive study of one particular aspect of reality. But it's a study of anything that can be known about reality 
by way of natural, the natural light of human reason. And so what is the only part of reality then that may not be a topic of philosophy? What? Theology, which is? Which is known by? Okay, now this is, these are important distinctions. Yeah, okay, faith aligned by, aligned by reason. Okay, I'm, I'm satisfied. Because it, it's tricky, because if you say God, did St. Thomas not give arguments for the existence of God? And they're philosophical arguments. Now, you're right. Theology deals primarily with God, okay, obviously, and says things about God that cannot be known by reason. And in that sense, theology supersedes philosophy. Okay? So what we have here looks something like this. Okay? We have the domain of theology and the domain of philosophy. That's known, all of its objects are in here, and all of theology's objects are here. Okay? Now, why did I put an overlapping section? What's that? Yeah, in what sense? That's a, that's a tautology. Well, yeah, well, well, very good, very good. Yeah. In what sense does theology and philosophy overlap? They're both plays. Mm-hmm. Some mm-hmm. Right, they deal with the same objects in some ways. Okay, good. Let's take, uh, maybe, let's look at what these objects might be. God, for instance. Not God in regarding his nature as triune, but God regarding his existence. God as one and as existing can be known by way of philosophy. Can you know it by faith that God exists? Obviously, right? Now, what St. Thomas says here, and this is just a good, this is just good for background knowledge for the rest of your life. I mean, I, I, and it sets the stage for what we'll do momentarily. Now, there are some things that are not able to be known by way of reason, according to St. Thomas. For instance, that Jesus Christ is both man and God. That God, the one God, is three persons. He thinks just with reason, without revelation, without the scriptures, without the church, we could not look out at our world, because that's all we have to deal with in philosophy, okay? is what we have, uh, our own minds, our world, we have to move from them to an understanding of something. And if you can't do it, philosophy is not able to deal with that subject matter. Okay? Now, God's existence is something traditionally acknowledged as something that the world okay, uh, can point to. Okay? And we can maybe deal with this a little bit more later. And also things like the immortality of the soul. Thomas will hold this to be something that can be demonstrated and something that clearly that is also revealed. However, these things out here are called something else. They're called the articles of faith. Okay. So these little things are called the articles of faith. Precisely because they can never be known by way of reason alone, apart from faith. And these little guys in here, then, what are they? They can't be the articles of faith because they can be known by reason. He calls them the preambles to the articles of faith. 
Because as grace builds on nature, so too does knowledge of the higher things depend on some knowledge uh, that is based on our natural reason. And so these are called the preambles to the articles of faith. <laughs> okay. And then the data here are just topics of, of philosophical speculation. Things that can be known by reason, and I guess in theory could also be revealed. Okay. So here, what do we have? We have reason and we have faith. They're complementary. They overlap to some extent. And there is still, however, a hierarchy. Okay? Faith supersedes the articles of faith, that is. Those truths supersede what reason can know naturally. And therefore, we have faith superseding reason. Okay. Now, let's look at the effects of this, uh, 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 that this has on some other areas of Catholic thought. Okay. So now we have this, this interesting thing. Okay. We don't have reason alone or faith alone. Okay. We don't have them divorced one from the other. But we have them united. Okay. Now, this unity of faith and reason is based upon, and I think this is, this is going to be very interesting, a deeper kind of unity. Okay. This unity is based on, okay, and, and I don't know how much of this you guys can see. I'm going to have to erase this. Excuse me. Okay. This unity is based on a deeper unity. And what is that? Okay. It's a unity in being. Okay. And I'm going to talk about this and how a concept of analogy in being okay, was lost in the late Middle Ages, which was the Renaissance, and therefore prohibited thinkers in the Enlightenment and late Renaissance and even today from seeing how faith and reason, philosophy and theology can be harmonized and leads them to the conclusions that people came to in, in the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Okay, so what, let's, let's talk about uh, St. Thomas's conception of God's relationship with his created world. Okay, so what do we have here? Okay, now this is dubbed uh, the funnel of being by some of my students. I kind of created this. See what you think. Okay. Okay. Now we have. Uh, uh, hold on. Er, okay, this is going to be uh, angels. This is God. This is supposed to signify infinity. I'll do that in a minute. So it, we have. I'm trying to draw as big, big as I can here. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, I'll draw big angels here. Uh, so uh, uh, shoot, because I have more. I have more to more to do here. Okay, uh, uh, okay. Animals, plants, and let's do rocks or something else down here. Okay, and erase all this. Uh, okay, okay. What do we have going on here? What, you know, have I lost my mind here? What am I doing? Okay, uh, I probably lost my mind, but I still think I know what I'm doing here. So, uh, so let's look at this. This is the vision that St. Thomas 
has of God and the universe. Okay? What am I doing? What is, what is going on here? God is, in this, in this instance, okay, he is being itself. Okay, what is that? God is subsistent existence. In, in Exodus 3.14, he is the I am, who am. I am existence, okay? He is everything, in other words, okay? Now, angels exist, and therefore they share in existence of a kind of existence, not existence in an absolute sense, but a kind of existence. What kind? Angelic existence. And therefore, they resemble God, and even God's goodness and, and God, some of God's attributes, even the fact that they're knowledgeable, okay, and, and they have life, okay, like God, they share in God's existence. And so this portion of the funnel represents the way they share their existence with God. And what is on the sides represents what is dissimilar or the aspect of being that they do not share. Therefore, in an ascending hierarchy, we have rocks to plants to animals to man to angels. We have a whole series of beings that all have their existence. And so even in existence, they resemble God. God exists. These things exist. But in addition to existence, they also have life. Okay, and what is life, by the way? How, how do, what's the difference between a, 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 a plant and a rock? A, a rock can't grow. So you're talking about something that is known through its actions. Okay, so growth is something that living things do. Uh, so, so what kind of movement does a plant uh, exemplify? What is different about its moving? Because I can kick a rock, too, and it moves. A plant moves by growing. How are those movements different? Good, good. Self-movement. That, that's very good. It's a, it's a very astute observation. Are you saying it has an in, the, the, the plant has an intrinsical principle of self-movement? Yes, whereas the, the, the rock is moved by an extrinsic source. Okay? And so it has something, a power, a kind of way of being, that is to be alive, <clears throat> that a rock does not have. Therefore, and is God alive? And so it shares in God's life in ascending degrees. Now there's an extent to which an animal and human are even more alive and have additional powers that make them resemble God in a greater way. Okay, This is the vision. Uh, I could say a million other things about it, but this is the vision of the universe that St. Thomas has and that allows him ultimately to say that faith and reason are complementary. Now let's look at another possibility. Okay? Now this makes, seems to make a lot of intuitive sense. Okay? And therefore, St. Thomas will say, we can know about God by way of philosophy. How? We can know our world. And the extent to which our world has its being and perfections from God, we can see that if this is good, then it must have received its goodness from that which is goodness itself. Let me take another example. When you look out at a beautiful church, and then you look at McDonald's, okay, is one more beautiful than the other? Okay, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. People have. have the, it depends on how hungry you are, maybe. You know, yeah. But 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 uh, but but in terms of the aesthetic qualities, 
Now, what allows you to say that that St. Peter's is more beautiful than McDonald's? Does that imply you have a knowledge of beauty itself? How so? Why? Good. Very good. Very good. Very good. Otherwise, how can you say that this is more beautiful if it didn't share in, in a richer, deeper way in some standard? You wouldn't be able to make that assertion. Okay, so as things are more and more beautiful uh, or more and more good, this also implies a knowledge of some standard, okay? something that is the best. Okay, and this is God, okay, who is the font of goodness, the font of beauty, and anything that has beauty or goodness shares its beauty and goodness, receives it from God, and participates in these perfections to a lesser degree. They don't, they're not beautiful the way God is beautiful or good the way God is good, but they are like God. Okay, that's key. They are like God. Now, what is the notion of analogy? What does that mean? In an analogy, what happens? It compares. Uh, In an analogy, something, could I say something is similar and dissimilar? Okay, in an analogy, something is like and unlike. Okay? Now, what is an alternative vision of reality? Okay? It would be this. And this is going to be even the vision of Hegel. God, plant, animals, everything are ultimately one thing. Okay? Rocks, man, uh, everything is ultimately one thing. This is not called an analogous concept of being, but a univocal concept of being. Okay? That all being is fundamentally the same. Okay, univocal predication is when, well, it's, it's when things are the same. The being of the angel, everything is basically the same. Here, they are similar. God is good, man is good, but in a different way. Here, they are identical because they are the same thing. There is no hierarchy in a univocal concept of being. Okay, and, and I think this will make more sense when we talk about predication. Uh, so so let, why don't I do that right now? So with this analogous conception of, of, of things, we could say God is good. Could we not? And we could say man is good. Could we not? Oh, God is God. That's another tautology. I think I did that last time, actually. Uh, 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 okay, so God is good. Uh, and I could do a capital for him. To dis- now, can I say man is good? Do I mean the exact same thing when I say that man is good and God is good? No. Now, that's an analogous, kind of analogical concept of predication. Now, what about this case? Okay? When I say God is good and man is good, I mean the same thing. There are the same thing. There's no hierarchy. Okay, just follow me. Okay, just, just try to follow me. here. Now, there's another concept of being, which is an equivocal. I know, it's hard to read. And in this case, there is nothing similar. Okay? In analogy, there's something similar, but something different. God is good, and man is good, but God is good in a superior way. Now, if an equivocal concept, God is here, man is here, 
and there is a, a separation. There is nothing similar about God and man. Okay, so when you say God is good and man is good, it means something entirely different. Okay, if you're, if you're going to deal with equivocal predication, okay, univocal, they mean the same thing. Analogical predication, they mean something that is similar and something that's different. But in equivocal predication, God is good and man is good, it means something totally different. Now, an equivocation, let me give you an example. There's a million of them, okay? Uh, if I say bark, bark referring to the covering of a tree and referring to the sound of a dog. The same word is being used, but there's nothing similar about them, okay? That is what we're dealing with, with equivocal concept of, 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 of being and of predication. God and man are radically dissimilar. Okay? Now, this is the vision, as we discussed last time, that was endorsed okay, by Martin Luther okay, and by John Calvin, is that there is nothing common about God and man. Now, if you hold to this vision, that God is infinitely separated from man, so infinitely separated, in fact, that there is nothing in common between God, man, uh, the world, etc. What does it say about the possibility of reason to support our faith? You can't do it. Because this world is so different from God, okay, that it can't say anything about him, okay? You can't use reason to comprehend God and his nature, okay? Now, in a univocal concept, okay, God and man are identical, really, okay? And there seems to be problems there, okay? Because what is the problem with the traditional Christian view? If God and man are the same, then God is not God, Okay, so it's a major problem. So there has to be some way of seeing things analogically to have a concept of how faith and reason can work together. Okay, because now with a univocal concept, you don't need faith because by way of this world, you can comprehend everything. But with equivocal predication, an equivocal concept of being, there is no way to come to know God, and therefore people either decide that all we can know is reason or all we can know is by faith. Okay, and going back to our square earlier, Martin Luther decided on this. And other thinkers like David Hume decided on this, that reason alone is all we can know. Faith alone is all we can know. Okay, and hence the reason Martin Luther would say, if man is good in any way, it would subtract from God's goodness, and that would be problematic. Now, Hegel will take this view, okay, that ultimately when we comprehend man, we comprehend God and everything is clear. But the only way to keep faith and reason separated but complementary is to favor this vision of how God is related to his creation by way of analogy. He is both similar and dissimilar from his creation. Are, we, are you following me? Okay, good. Now, let me, let me look at this in, in practice. Uh, how are we doing on time? Where's, where's my timekeeper? Uh, left for the whole thing? 
I got started a little. I got started at seven forty. Oh, ten. Oh. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. I'm. I'm going to start. You know, weeping here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 So let's. 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 let's, let's okay. So let's at least finish this up. Okay. Now. Now I, I'm going to set the stage for what we're going to do next time. It's going to be. This is going to be brilliant. Now, how does this play out in affairs? And, and this is something I did last time for the other group, and I think this is helpful. Okay. Now, how does this, uh, what is all this philosophy? How does it have to do with reality and what people actually think and believe? Well, let's look at it, like in the case even of, of Thomas, or, and maybe even the case of Luther or other individuals. Now, let's look at this. Now, with this vision, you can do a lot of things, like make sense of the sacraments. You can make sense of the church. You can make sense of different kinds of authority. You can make sense of how God and man can act together. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Okay? Let, we're dealing now with how man and God can act together and how St. Thomas's vision, okay, with analogy, helps us have the correct idea about the relationship between man and God. Now, when I make, if I can find my pen again, this mark on the board, who made that mark? Or what made that mark? The, the pen did. Okay, we have the pen. Okay. Did did I? Did we both? Oh, oh so so I did like ninety five percent of it, and the pen did five percent. Okay, we have a yes. We have a yes. We have a yes. Ninety five and five. Do we have any other? Do we have any other ideas? Hundred. Who did a hundred? Okay, good. Ooh, 100 and 100 on both. How can they both do 100? By way of analogy. Aha. The pen contributes, did 100% of the work, and contributed what it can contribute as a pen, which is, which is marks. And I did 100%, and I contributed what is an intelligible mark, uh, if I make this intelligible. I'm not going to make that intelligible. An arrow. An arrow that points to the door, which is where I'm going to have to go in a few minutes when I get kicked out of here. Anyway, okay. So, 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 so we have, we have, uh, um, okay. So, so we have that, and they're, they're both contributing 100%, 100%. But yet the pen doesn't subtract from my involvement. Now, there's fascinating quotes by John Calvin that we talked about last time. I wish we could get into it. He said, if man does anything good at all, it subtracts from the glory of God. Oh, it subtracts. If, if man does anything good at all, it subtracts. But why is he struggling with this? I'll show you. He's not an idiot at all. He's dealing with a real problem. Okay, look at this. When I carry this podium, and I get this big guy over here to help me, okay? Now, I know I, I'm, I'm particularly you know, well-endowed physically here and strong and, and so forth, but, uh, but I think this guy's a little bit stronger than I am. And so could I carry... Let's say we carried this out together, and I carried 30% of it, and he carried 70%. Can we do that? Ah, why can we share the load, but I cannot share the load with a pen? Because the two of you can do the same thing. Okay. Nature. We have the same nature. Right. We have the same nature. Very astute. But I don't with a pen. We are of a different nature, and therefore we contribute something proper to our nature. Okay? Now, this is a notion that people talked about 
regarding God and man working together in the Renaissance, even among Catholics, like Luis Molina, a famous Jesuit Renaissance scholastic. He said, what happens when man and God work together? It's like two people pulling a ship, he says. I don't know, I don't know why he uses that example, like what kind of ship they're pulling. Anyway, forget it. Uh, but he gives that example. And then he goes on to make some distinctions that are appropriate. But this is the scholasticism that Luther received. This is the scholasticism that the early uh, people in the Renaissance and then into the Enlightenment received. And therefore, they could not come up with the concept of analogy because God and man cannot do that together. That, that, that's impossible. And so what does he have to do? He has to say either it was done 100% by man or 100% or, or by God. And what does he do? He sides with God and said, God can explain 100% of that activity. Now, if it's an evil action, man explains 100% of the activity. Okay? Now, what about other thinkers? Like in the Renaissance, the people who are interested in reason. I can explain my walking across the street, my doing good deeds by myself. I don't need God to explain it. Ah, but with analogy, you always need God. And I'll get into this in a little bit more in a minute. But with analogy here, so how do you resolve this? Okay. I can share the load with someone of the same nature, but not with someone like God. So how is it then that man and God cooperate in the performance of some effect? How is it that man wrote scripture? Okay. Okay, who wrote the gospel according to John? John, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so who wrote it? I, did John write like like a few, like a two percent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So, so, okay, that's a good question. It's an important distinctions. John wrote a hundred percent of it. The Holy Spirit wrote a hundred percent, but in a different way. Okay, according to this this kind of instrumental causality. Therefore, you're, you can affirm then God's involvement in the world. Okay, and if you had time, you want to talk to me afterwards. I can talk about how even crossing the street, even that action that can be explained simply by looking at my anatomy and on completely physical mechanistic explanation, even that action demands God's existence. And I, if we had more time, I'd get into that. But every action, everything that happens, necessitates God's involvement in some way. And yet, you can still explain the universe according to natural laws. Okay? And according to, to what is actually going on. And you can find, therefore, some uh, harmonization, if you will, between man's life of faith, man's life of reason. And now, however... I mean, if you had this equivocal concept like Martin Luther and those that went after him, you would have to say that it's either God or man. Or with a univocal concept of being, God and man are identified with one another. It's, it's, you can explain it simply based on reason. And you don't have to choose between faith and reason because reason does it all. Whereas with an equivocal predication, you have to decide. Is it all God? Luther says so. Is it all man? Marx says so, David Hume says so, and a whole range of the thinkers we're going to talk about next time. So, what we're trying to do here, okay, is, is, is find, and I'll finish here, the middle ground. Okay? Have you ever heard 
With Catholics, it's always both and. Okay? It's always, does that sound like analogy? It's both this and that in a different sense. It's both God and man, but in a different sense. And so, okay, that is somewhat, something we're uniquely able to do as Catholics because we have the correct philosophy that undergirds our theology. And without that concept, you're very easy and even inclined naturally to say it either has to be God or man because they can't share the load. Okay, which is what Martin Luther was doing. Because he couldn't conceive of a way in which they could share the load where God would be 100% involved and man because he had lost the conception of analogy. Very clear then how a philosophical concept has profound theological ramifications. Okay? Now, to, to, to kind of summarize this and move forward, we started off by saying, okay, in the Enlightenment, and as we're going to unpack it next time, and the different, the different uh, ideologies, you had those that said that reason could do everything, okay? and those that said that reason couldn't do anything. Now again, it's both and. Okay? Reason can do a lot, but it can't explain everything. And we need room for faith to fill in uh, what, what reason cannot provide us with. And even then, there's still mystery. And so the universe of Hegel that tried to explain everything, and we'll get into his thought and how he did that, is, 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 it, 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 it makes you say, well, there's more mystery. The Catholic vision can make room for that mystery. Okay? At the same time, it doesn't have to deny man's capacity to know his world. It just says that there can be, there's more to be said about the world than can be known by the way of natural reason. With the help of revelation, which is what? An unveiling. Okay, an unveiling to make clear to man what cannot be known through his natural powers of reason. Okay? So, with this vision, okay, we have something beautiful. Okay, and I mentioned this last time. We have a romance. We have a romance. How so? How so? Because with a romance, what do you need? What do you need for a romance? What, what chemistry you said? No, not chemistry. What did you say? Um, some room for mystery. You, you, exactly. You need some adventure. I mean, as I, as I said before, you don't want to marry your cousin. You know, there's, there's no mystery there. There's no excitement in that. You know, a sibling, besides canonical problems, there's just no mystery there, okay? Uh, you, know, you want, you want, however, if they're totally mysterious, you don't speak the same language, okay? Uh, you don't have the same religion, there's no familiarity. You want both and, and that's what this Catholic vision provides. You can both know and find familiarity in the world. You can make sense of it. However, there's still adventure. We can never comprehend all there is. And even by way of faith, it takes us beyond what we can know by reason. But we can never understand everything. Okay? And we even need a, a, a new disposition, as it says, and it's not, it's not, to see God as he is. Okay? And we don't, we'll never see God as he is in, in this side of heaven. Okay? Even you know, people are granted these mystical visions, but, but even there's more to come, and it's not in this world. Okay, so hopefully we've, we've just kind of dove in. Okay, now now some of it's kind of maybe over your head or what have you. Uh, that's that's my first experience when I took a philosophy class too, and and uh, but hopefully we, we see something here of of why people are going one direction, why they're going the other, 
And what is the middle road that holds all these things in tension, these semi-paradoxical ideas of, of reason and faith, mystery and knowledge, in, in, in this beautiful way? And now we can see very clearly the deviations and the disastrous consequences in human history that results from a failure to acknowledge what we talked about tonight. See you next week. What's that? Our usual rules apply for Q&A. Mark, our usual rules apply for Q&A. All right. You've got five minutes to answer all the questions. We don't go more than five, maybe ten if they're good. But we a maximum of five questions. All right. Make sure your question is one sentence long. If you have, a, have to take a breath in the middle, it's too long. And uh, make sure it has a question mark on the end. And by the way, someone talked about, just mentioned just now, uh, you know, this, this romance that we have as Catholics because of this, this analogous concept of being, it helps us with this. I, I wasn't, I'm not trying to say Protestants don't have that at all or anything like that. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a convert to Catholicism, actually. And I, I converted my freshman year of college. And, and, and I'm not trying to say that. However, I think this concept of analogy particularly gifts an individual with an ability to see life in this fashion. I mean, to see, I mean, because Martin Luther explicitly denies that this world and knowing this world can give us any knowledge of God. Okay, and, and, and Catholics say it can. You know, and, and they try to even find scriptural support in First uh, Romans 20, one Rome, uh, uh, Let's see, how, how do you say this? See, I, I'm a philosophy guy. Sometimes uh, scripture's not so good. But, but Romans 1.20. Romans 1.20. Uh, it says that, that the people ought to have known that God existed through the things that have been made. And so, therefore, in things that have been made, they ought to have known that God existed. And, and, and that needs kind of an analogous concept of being. And some Protestants kind of have that, almost maybe not even to their knowledge, but, but in terms of, of, the, of the strict theology of Martin Luther and of John Calvin, they don't have it present, whereas in the philosophy and theology of St. Thomas, it is. Uh, it's, it's not that the, you know, Protestants don't have romance or anything like that. I don't want to say that in any sense. Uh, but but, but a, a romance does have these two aspects, and I think a concept of analogy helps explain that reality. But I, I certainly didn't want to say that in an exclusive way. Questions? Is there a book or books that you could recommend yeah. to us a little bit more? Yeah. Sure. Um, Okay, okay. Now the rest of it, for, for what it's worth, okay, the rest of it is going to be a little bit more straightforward. I'm, I'm going to go over Descartes, what he said. I'm going to go over Immanuel Kant, what he said. A little David Hume, a little Hegel, and a little Nietzsche, and that's it. Okay, and I'm going to say what they said and what a little bit went on in the scientific revolution. Okay, so those thinkers I'm going to deal with. If you want to read Descartes' Meditations on First Philosophy. Go right ahead. Okay, that's a great start. Uh, if you want to read Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, good luck. You know, uh, uh, even Kant knew that the thing makes no sense. You know, and 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 he said, uh, first of all, it was one of the first academic works written in German. Uh, before that, you know, even Leibniz, one of the best German scholars, wrote in Latin and then French. 
became an accepted language uh, among intellectuals. And finally, Kant's was like the first real serious academic work ever to be written in German. So he's just making up words for stuff here. You know, it's tough. And so he wrote his prolegomena to any future metaphysics because he said, no one understood anything I said in Critique of Periodism. And even the prolegomena is not easily comprehensible either. So anyhow, so, so those would be works. But for the stuff I did today, there's a good book. Okay? Uh, and, and it deals with this. And, and it, uh, I'm plugging a, a Swiss-Dominican uh, who is now working for the CDF, the Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith in Rome. And he's also the dean of the philosophy department and soon to be dean of the university, or rector, I think, of the university I study at. And, and the last name is spelled M-O-R-E-R-O-D. It looks like Morod, Moro is how, uh, it's, it's a French name, uh, but he's a, he's a, and he wrote a book, and, and, and it's, it's translated from French into English recently, published by Ave Maria Press, called The Philosophical Background of Ecumenism. Okay, and he's done a lot of great work in ecumenism, actually. And he says, ecumenism is going nowhere. And why is it going nowhere? Because we have to get back to the philosophy of the reformers in order to understand why they come to different conclusions about theology. Because if you look at it, you look at the sacraments and everything. Everything is rooted in, in an inability to see things this way. The, a love of the saints. A love of Mary does not subtract from our love of God. Okay? Uh, you know, uh, uh, honoring them does not subtract from the honor that's due to God alone. Okay? And, and, and a concept like this can, can contribute. You know, beautiful things do not subtract from the beauty of God. They actually help us come to know the beauty of God. Okay? Anyway, so it's the philosophical background of ecumenism, written by, Phil, uh, uh, I think his first name is Philip, uh, Father Moro, and it's published by Ave Maria Press. But if you Google the name M-O-R-E-R-O-D, uh, Philosophical Background of Ecumenism or something like that, you'll find a book that deals with a lot of this stuff. And, and, it's, and it's, it's exceptional. It's a great, first-rate work. Next, good question. Next one. Isn't there a missing dimension here, the yeah. dimension of becoming rather mm. than being? Yeah, yeah. Your hierarchy, your analogy from the scholastics leaves yeah. out the Christian patristic concept of yeah. becoming. God became man that man might become divine. Mm -hmm. From the Greek and Syrian fathers mm -hmm. that the West forgot. Yeah. Okay, good question. Okay, so, so becoming. Now, now, there's being and becoming. There's different senses of becoming. Okay, uh, I'm dealing with things regarding their nature here, like in this, in this hierarchy of being. I'm simply looking at the natures of things. But of course, like if we're talking about St. Thomas, you know, the first part of the Summa deals with God, deals with his created work. But what does the first part of the second part of the Summa deal with? It deals with man's return back to God, whereby through the moral life, through his response to the call of simple goodness, insofar as it's ordered or disordered, man becomes a moral being and moves in ways that either leads him away from his natural end, which is God, or towards it. And so, so in terms of becoming and, and in terms of man growing and becoming like God, it's, it's not a becoming in the metaphysical sense, but more so in the moral sense, that man is, 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 is yeah. 
I mean, uh, so, so uh, because we, we, we always, even when we're united with God, we keep our nature. Okay, we don't become another God. We still become likened unto God, but we don't become God, obviously. We don't become an angel. We still become, we're still man. And that's a, a fundamental theme. I mean, is, is that there's union without absorption. We're not, and the church fathers talked about that too, we're not absorbed into God, but we're united with him. And, and we become like him our natures become perfected, but we're still men in union with God. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't become something else. God perfects me and you. He doesn't make us something else. Okay? All right. Uh, any other questions? Question? Uh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Sure. I'd be happy to comment. So, so what's the problem? I mean, so, so in some ways, the devil's a fallen angel, right? And so, uh, he is still an angel, and he still is intelligent. And what's tricky at the devil is he'll always know more than we do. You know what distinguishes the devil from us? He doesn't love. He doesn't love God. He doesn't. He knows all of what's right to do, and that's what's so insidious. Is his knowledge is so deep, but his moral response to what he knows is twisted, profoundly so. And therefore, from a moral perspective, he removes himself from God in a profound way, in a way that was free. Now, when he made one decision to separate himself, and and therefore morally. He is, in terms of, his, uh, of, of the way we're judged, because we're not judged to go to heaven just because we're a man. We're judged on the basis of how we act. Okay? And, and, and men can go to heaven because we're rational animals. We can know God and therefore choose to act in his ways or not. And same with angels. And some chose, it sounds like, at least if my theology is right, a third of them chose incorrectly. And therefore, they're morally removed from God in a profound way, even if their natures, their knowledge is, is clear, is still likened unto God in, in a way that even supersedes ours. Okay. One of the things that we haven't touched on and yeah. that I think has a profound effect that I need to... Yeah, yeah. We haven't talked about atheists who believe that God is simply a construct. We don't even need to... Ah. Yeah, yeah. Everything can be known by reason of God is simply a fact. Right. And, and that's, and that, in, in my little square that I just did, they're the, the bottom, and I, I just made this up right before I came here. So, so it, might, it might not cover everything, but, but the bottom right quadrant, okay, those people that really think that empirical data is all we can know, and this world cannot reveal anything about God, uh, they, they don't believe in, they don't believe in God. And, and, and therefore, and we'll get into that later, I mean, in the 19th century, the notion develops that what God is, okay, because we ultimately based on Hegel, Hegel says God is identical with man, and people seem to, to have a, a tough time with that. So then people get the idea, and some of his disciples, okay, that maybe God is a construction of man. In other words, okay, uh, and this would be Feuerbach, Ludwig Feuerbach, one of the leftist disciples of Hegel. Okay? There's right Hegelians, left Hegelians. The left Hegelians uh, said, said this. They said, well, what God is is simply construct, 
Okay, what we are doing is projecting the best of what it means to be a man onto this imaginary thing. And therefore, it's an atheistic humanism. And therefore, what man needs to do to become fully man is to take back what we have projected onto this false deity. And this is also Nietzsche, too, okay? And, and, and is, is like, like this a little bit. Is that we are all, almighty. We are omnipotent. We have all these powers that have been abdicating and given over to this imaginary deity. We need to take it back. And really, then, man can be what he was, what he is. And, and, he, can, and he can discover and fulfill all of his potential. You know, but, but they fit... But those thinkers do fit, and they might come into our discussion, and they fit in that bottom right quadrant there. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Anyway, thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.